0: time I'd end up just curled up in a ball and a shower tray somehow before composing myself and then coming into the family space to be a dad and husband but that was just getting harder and harder and then it got to the point we'd contemplate suicide put the, the gun in my mouth which I did several times okay I'd squeeze the trigger slightly
1: what is up everyone I am Lachlan Samuel and this is the open up podcast the show where real people open up and share real stories of struggle. What is up everyone, I'm Lachlan Samuel and this is the Open Up Podcast, episode number four with my man Jason Nelson, otherwise known as the Kilted Rogue Runner. He's a public speaker for the Western Australia Association of Mental Health, and he does have now his own blog where you get to share your own private stories. Thanks for being here, Jess.
0: Yeah, my pleasure, mate. It's uh, great to finally catch up.
1: Yeah, finally, it's been a while in the making. I know. <laughs> <laughs> what we want to do is jump right into childhood, and yep. I guess how you were raised and any influences or events that you feel shaped who you are during that turbulent time of your life. As well as who you are today,
0: I had a pretty good childhood, to be honest. We didn't have a lot. We were brought up in quite a poor upbringing, um, as far as kind of financial stuff goes with my parents. I suppose one of the main reasons for that financial impact on my folks was, you know, we were working class family, but yep. in the late seventies we moved to Australia, moved to Adelaide. Oh well. Lived there for a while, and then my mum was really homesick. So she ended up moving back to the UK. But being the the boomerang palm type of thing, cleared them out financially. Yeah. Then my dad struggled to get work back there. Materialistic-wise, mm-hmm. we didn't have a lot. Yeah. It, it didn't really matter. Okay. So, other than moving to Australia, didn't really have holidays abroad. No. It was mainly camping and that type of stuff. We didn't have a coloured TV till 1985. Wow. Um, <laughs> just things like that, but it didn't matter, you know? Yeah. Because... My mom and dad were were really just so grounded, yeah, and so open. Uh, you know that we weren't spiritual people or such religious-wise, but um, I described their spirit just as uh, as a lifestyle more than anything else. Their spiritual being. My dad, as as far as I can remember, as a kid was uh, was always drawn to Native American Indians. Well, and he's not a learned man as yeah. far as a, a formal education. You know, he left school at fourteen, became a, a Join as apprentice and a carpenter, but extremely talented as a as a carpenter, as a sculptor, and as a fine artist, he, mm-hmm. he paints. But yeah, as far as a formal education, he didn't have a great deal. But he's he's just taught himself so much, and now he, he actually studied shamanism and wow, that's heat, awesome. Reiki and crystal healing and all that. He's he's a real like um, I love him to bits. He's he's probably my single most biggest role model.
1: Oh. So shamanism, um, have you ever tried ayahuasca? No, I haven't. Are you going to with him? I'll, I'll,
0: I'm going to try anything, <laughs> to be honest with you. It was it was really good. Last time he was over, a little over a year back. And while he was here, he actually smudged the whole house with the burning white sage. Oh, God. Um, he smudged it in a uh, his feather wand, which he made while he was here, just to to clean, cleanse the house and whatever. He wanted to do it after, um, which we'll obviously touch on later, because it was only a year or so after Holly... My daughter had attempted to take a life. He just wanted to clean the energy out of the house. Yeah. It was bizarre because the house did feel Yeah. Like Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So no, I had a great upbringing. Yeah, as I said, didn't have a lot. Yeah. But had so much more in other ways.
1: Okay. So you see materialism or the position of things. Like, yeah, yeah. Things. Wasn't a big deal in your family, would you say you were compensated with love? Oh, instead? Absolutely. Yeah,
0: some of our holidays, like camping holidays, we used to go to this campsite caravan and campsite called Hendower in North Wales. It was right on the, on the banks of the River Dee, and there was a tributary running through the actual campsites. there was a, a trout stream running through the campsite, mm-hmm. and right in the mountains and the hills. And they were a holidays, you know. We, we could run feral. It was safe as yeah. Catch fish in the river, and then up the mountain on the opposite side of the mountain, we climbed up to the top. There was an old. Druid Stone Circle. Yeah. On the top. They were our adventures. And those holidays meant so much to me. Yeah. That I I took my kids holiday in wow. there when they were little to the same awesome. spot and they loved it for the same reason.
1: Did you feel the same way about it then as you do now? Oh, yeah. Did you love those holidays then? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because it's not quite often that kids who have to go camping and don't get the lavish holidays actually love them like you do. They mm. usually would rather have the lavish holidays and sort of despise having to go camping. So it's quite nice that you've grown up that way with love and enjoying outdoors with your family.
0: Yeah. Don't get me wrong,
1: we used to have
0: nice holidays abroad when... Our kids were growing up when they were little, but we did it alternate years. Yep. So one year we'd go to Spain or somewhere in Europe. The following year we'd stay in the UK and do camping and caravan. Awesome. Get to learn a bit about the, their own country. Yeah. As well as seeing other cultures. So we still talk about those holidays now. You know, now they're grown up. That's
1: cool. So moving on from that you've grown up with a loving family, being outdoors quite a lot, enjoying those holidays. Were there any influences or events apart from those holidays that you feel shaped you in any way?
0: I suppose in any, anyone's life there's, there's the the good and the bad side to things. Unfortunately for me, um, I was sexually assaulted by a person in a position of trust when I was 13 on at least three occasions without going into too much detail because um, that's currently going before the courts. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose looking back now, Going through that process of reporting that and, and getting some psychotherapy to help me with those things back then. Those incidents definitely shaped me. But I'm thankful for them yep. because they did shape me in that the beauty of hindsight. I look back now and my behavior as a teenager went downhill, got in with the wrong crowd, you know, into yep. a bit of petty crime and stuff. So, and going through psychotherapy now, mm-hmm. I know that was probably one of the causes, probably the cause. Yeah. But I was lucky enough that I got to a point when I was like fifteen, sixteen, when I knew I wanted to join the military. Yeah, and I'm actually thankful I did join the military. Because I probably would have continued going with the wrong crowd, and and sorry if you can hear the dog in the background. Um, <laughs> got in with the wrong crowd, and I might have ended up doing all sorts of silly things, to be honest with you. So, although it wasn't it wasn't a great experience to go through, obviously at the yeah. time and being sexually assaulted, but I genuinely believe it's, it made me strong as a person. And from what I've learned about, about myself even more so over the last 10 years, I'm a real firm believer that through struggle comes strength, and I've, yep. I've definitely gained that,
1: I think. That's awesome. Well, I just want to acknowledge that because obviously that's probably one of the hardest things to talk about is going through abuse and obviously touching on it briefly because of what's happening with the courts. Mm. I really do just want to acknowledge the fact that you're putting it out there. Hopefully, that encourages courage down line for people currently going through the same thing, thinking internally whether they should share it or not.
0: Yeah, and it's you know it's, it's a real individual decision, I suppose, depending on yeah. who's affected and, and the wider connections around you at the time. Yeah, I'd always encourage people to come forward, not just for the justice side, but at least for your own healing. Yeah, But it is an individual decision, and I, I really appreciate you acknowledging that. I do plan, once it's been through the whole court process, to speak publicly about it, okay. once I'm allowed to, to at least not inspire people, but at least give people hope or the empowerment or the courage to do the same thing, if that's what's going to help.
1: Yeah. Well, knowing who you are today, yeah, obviously speaking for the WA Association of Mental Health yeah. and through your Kilted Rogue Runner movement, Yeah. You are someone who I look up to mm-hmm. as someone who's changing the stigma around mental health. So I can only imagine the impact you're going to make when you're finally allowed to talk about this and impact lives with a story that's more hard-hitting and less mainstream. But moving on from that, were there any other influences or events that you feel shaped you?
0: I suppose one of the things that you know, going to talk about uh, my running side of stuff. Yeah, the Kilted Road Runner. my. Um, running adventures really started. Distance running adventures really started for me when I was eleven, and I I was doing a sixteen mile sponsored walk. Yeah, with my family, it was to raise money for the Royal National Lifeboat Institute in the UK. And when we got to the start of the event, two two squads of Royal Marine Commandos turned up. Yeah, in the fatigues, and they were running the whole thing in formation. Well, and for some bizarre reason, I don't know why, still to this day probably don't know why, I decided well I'm going to give it a go, I'm going to run. 11 years old, probably dressed in the worst gear for running at the time (laughs) and a pair of plimsolls or something, you know, nothing like the sports gear that you get today and I I ended up running it and it was these two squads of Royal Marine Commandos and I came in behind the first squad but ahead of the second. Yep. And I'm 11 years old, and they thought it was awesome. And afterwards, they give me a ride in a big truck and oh, all that amazing. type of stuff. And and for me, that was probably the turning point. Probably the first time that I decided I want to be in the military. Yeah. And I come from quite a military family. Okay. Um, my dad wasn't in the military, but he, he was a ship joiner, uh, military shipbuilders. Yeah. Grandfathers were military, uncles were military. Yeah, but that's that's where the distance running came from. And also for me, it's where even with without a lot of talent, as far as you know, I, I didn't know what I could run before that day. Yeah. But I, I always look back to that that event as in, well, if you can set your mind to something, yeah, you might feel like shit, or you might you might be aching for days afterwards, but you can do it, right? Yeah, if you set your mind to it, you can do it. So yeah, from that sort of moment on, that's that's where my love for distance running can, awesome. albeit carried on through school, track and field, and I've kind of been distance running ever since. So
1: That's amazing. Do you feel like it's possible that you tie the reward of distance running to that feeling of being congratulated by the commandos and going for a ride in the truck? I probably I probably did back then. Yeah. Now for
0: me though, distance running is meditation for me.
1: Okay, your time alone where you can yes, it's, it's, shut it's, the thoughts yes, off? Yes,
0: my, my self-care, I, I never run with music. I never listen to anything. Well, Even on the, the long, like when I'm training for a marathon and the longest training runs will be 32, 33 Ks. Okay. I never run with listening to anything. Because for me, when I run, I listen to my breathing rate, I listen to my feet fall, and then I just get into a zone. And it, it's it's meditation for me. So I'll, I'll do all my thinking, all my planning, put the world to the right, come back. I always feel better anyway, better yep. energised. Obviously, get those endorphins flooding around the body. Awesome. So that's the reason why I've continued to do it. You know, I don't. Uh, I love running in
1: different places, traveling
0: around, running. But yeah, the main reason to keep on top, not just for the physical fitness, but for my mental fitness as well.
1: Well, that's quite good that you've mentioned the running being your meditation, because at the later end of the interview, I'm going to ask you for a tip. But I think we'll just use running as your actionable tip for anyone who's currently uh, going through. A struggle or a down period in their life, and they just need a break from those negative thoughts. So, if you could explain how you run,
0: it's the same process every time. Get out the door, I'll just ease into it. I don't go out at a particular pace. I spend yep. the first five minutes just warming up, getting into it, and, and then getting into the zone. So, so I concentrate on my breathing. Mm-hmm. Uh, normally, so many steps as I breathe in, so many steps as I breathe out. Yep. Get into that process, listen to my feet. Hit the ground, and then just keep doing that process. And then while I do that, then I process what I'm thinking about at the time. Whether I've had a tough week or a tough day. Yeah. I also find that running in nature is just so much more fulfilling. Yeah. And mindful okay. than running on on the road, right? Yeah. And I always mix up the places I run because I don't want to get bored. Or even like for people to run barefoot along the beach, yeah. something like that, where you can kind of get closer. To nature and to the elements yeah that's that's yeah. my tip for people and I don't want to scare listeners in that people that oh I could never run a marathon, I could never run distance, but I've probably trained maybe about ten people well wow. from zero to marathon that's and, amazing and it can be done it's just you've just got to trust the process okay,
1: and as someone who has trained ten people from zero to marathon, what change do you see in those people mentally?
0: Oh, I say it straight from day one, distance running is. Is 20% fitness, 80% mental. Yep. And it's rewarding for me to see the change of those people. Um, of course. I trained my eldest daughter's friend last year to run a half marathon. And same kind of process. I, there's no way I can run that distance. Yeah, When we first started, we were out on the training runs, you know, we were literally running and then walking, running and then walking, running, and walking, and building the run up, less in the walking, building the run up. And then it was all about belief, right? I, I knew this girl had the fitness level there, yep. um, or at least the baseline, but it was all all mental. All mental. Yeah. And then getting to the point where I'd actually kind of lie to her when we were out on training. Yeah. Runs, so she never had a GPS watch or anything like that. And it would be <laughs> like, how far we've gone? And we might have gone 2K. So yep. I'd say we've gone 2.5 or... <laughs> yeah, so but it it kind of worked. I remember one day it was twelve months ago, last week. Yeah, we went for a run. I told her, and we were doing a mix of of road and trail. And I said to her, oh, "We're just doing twelve k." So we, you know, we've been running for a while by this time. But towards the end of it, I had to cough to her because we actually ran fifteen <laughs> through trails that was hilly and rocky, and yep. and we started off in the sunshine, and then it was pissing down by the end of it, and we were piss wet through by the end. But but even last week, this, this memory had come up on Facebook for her, and she'd messaged me and saying, you know, we were still chatting about it awesome. as a thing that we accomplished together. And it was interesting, uh, she ran the HBF Half Marathon last okay. year, and then she kept ticking over, not doing a great deal of, of longer distance, but she kept ticking over. And then um, she decided two weeks out from the um, City to Surf in August that, she was going to run the city to surf half marathon well and i wasn't able to to train her run with it at the time but she ended up pbing it's amazing
1: all on her own so
0: yeah it's just it's just about instilling that belief i think
1: oh that's amazing i didn't expect that outcome or that gain from running obviously hearing you explain how you run it's pretty evident that you use it as more like a form of reconnecting back to consciousness and staying in the moment which is i guess a movement in itself at the moment especially mm. through meditation you say, use running as your meditation, but also using running as something to break through that self-limiting belief.
0: Mm, I remember all of those kind of little milestones that we reached. Yeah, I'm I'm back training with her again.
1: She lives with anxiety
0: too, and it, and it certainly helps her. Okay. So yeah, over the, only the last couple of weeks, I've started training with her again for HPF this year, but I can already see the difference with her. And she's actually said the last couple of weeks, you know, it's really
1: going to help her with her final year of uni and all that type of stuff. So it's a lot of stress.
0: But it's keeping her focused and keeping her energised. Awesome.
1: So fast-forwarding from this running, which is an amazing actionable tip that anyone out there can use when they're feeling down. I'm going to share another tip with you later as well. Okay, awesome. Fast-forwarding from running and uh, the commandos congratulating you while you're 11 and then the abuse at 13. We're going to move on to your story and why we are here today is yep. to, to share your story with other people listening to hopefully encourage the sort of courage that you have down line so they may open up and release some of that excess baggage that they're carrying. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through your story?
0: Yeah, I kind of explain leaving school age and then up until my suicide attempts 10 years ago in that metaphorically I kind of liken it to being like right high up in a mountain. Yeah, you see this serene setting where you write at the first source, the first trickle of water coming out of the ground. Mm -hmm. That is, you know, makes its way down the hillside, taking the path of least resistance, gaining strength and gaining size. You know, eventually becomes a stream, becomes a bigger body of water, so big that it actually carves its way through the land. Yeah. Gain strength and becomes this invincible body of water. Head into a marriage with the sea or the ocean. That for me is how I felt as a young fella, right? So when I left school and I joined the Royal Navy, you know, I had nine years in the Royal Navy, which were just some of the best times of my life. Yeah, right? well, because of the camaraderie. Yeah, camaraderie, being paid to travel the world. And I'm still friends with many of those guys that I joined up with yeah. still to this day, 30 years on. But that's how I felt, right? I just yeah. felt like I was this invincible being. Nothing really fazed me. I didn't really get stressed. I didn't really know what uh, mental illness was. Um, oh. I saw my dad have a breakdown in the 80s. Yeah, But it was still very much a taboo subject back then so it was one of the very few times I'd seen my dad cry I I think I've seen my dad maybe half a dozen times in my whole life right
1: well but those moments are powerful when you see someone you look up to oh have looked up to all your life cry it
0: yeah I reckon most of the tears we shed were together before I moved over here really yeah because he understood why I moved over here because my dad's like a best mate to me too yeah you know Um, big role model it was difficult when I left, but you know, he's been over here three times now to see us. So, my mum, but um, yeah, that's how I felt. You know, I joined the military and I was traveling the world. And, and then towards the end of my naval career, I'm um, we had our oldest daughter Jade, yeah. And that's when the military life was like, nah, I can't do this anymore,
1: yeah. Too much I, time away,
0: yeah, yeah. Because at the time I was on board ship, they were like nine month deployments, so it was wow, it was like see her in January or see you in March. and I'll see you back in Christmas.
1: I can't it. imagine that. I thought four and one or <laughs> five and two was hard. I can't imagine nine yeah. months
0: away. Um, like in 92, started doing workups in the January. Uh, I wasn't with them then. Went away in the March. Got yep. back in December. Wow. Well, and I was down the Gulf and then Christmas leave type of thing. And then same thing again. Workups again, early 93. And out in Bosnia until later on that year. And then I left um that ship at the end of 93 it's had a bit of time shoreside, side and that's when we fell pregnant and i got married then it was time to go back to sea again yeah you know you get to pick up another ship and then it's i don't want to be doing these nine months away and when you think about it as well we're talking like 20 odd years ago so there's no internet there was no skype mobile phones were crap i might be at sea for like three or four weeks at a time without any contact with your loved ones
1: that's way too much
0: and then you come alongside, mail arrives, and you end up finding out everything through mail, through, okay. like, snail mail, original mail. Or you'd come alongside, mail didn't come on board till maybe the next day. Yep. You, you managed to get some shore leave. You'd find a public phone somewhere or oh. an international phone card. You'll phone home, catch up on everything that you've missed over those last three weeks till you, since you spoke, and then the mail would telling you exactly what you'd found out on the phone anyway. So. Yep. Yeah, it was difficult back then, but and that's why the guys on board became your family.
1: Yeah, I can imagine that was tough to be away that long, especially not having contact for three to four weeks at a time. Mm. Did you use your mates on board this camaraderie as something to fall back on when you did feel mentally drained?
0: Absolutely, because everyone's in the same boat. Like whether you had a a long term girlfriend, partner, kids, whatever. I always remember the first two weeks at sea was shit. Yep. It was just awful until you got away. and But once you got into the routine of, mm-hmm. of naval life and, and what you're doing every day, it was fine. And then even on board, you know, we had a gym and you could run around the upper deck. There was always stuff to keep you focused. Yeah, yeah, you did fall back at them. Yeah, and without a doubt. None of us would get through those long times away from home okay. without each other, without a doubt. And as I said, I've got some of my lifelong friends that I've made from the military.
1: Well, I can see why now. You said you were this teenager who felt invincible, like, oh, yeah. the, like that water flowing down from the green pastures, eventually cutting its way to the sea. Walk us through your story from the Royal Navy. So I left the, I
0: left the Royal Navy in end of 97, and I, I applied for the, the fire brigade and the, and the police, and the police came through first, which is quite ironic because I, I grew up hating coppers, so... Um, <laughs> To become one, and, and it's true though. Uh, and as I said, you know, I was I was running around with a long bunch of people really, and yeah. for a while. And those people who I thought they were my friends, when I became a copper, dropped me like a bad habit oh as well. well. So, but that was fine, you know. And, and yeah. you got, I knew that that was part of the territory. Left Royal Navy, joined joined Cheshire Police in the UK, and yeah, I, I was really just after a secure job. Yeah initially but I, I fell in love with it being at sea one of my things i uh, used to do keep me occupied in downtime was reading i always been an avid reader and i was really fascinated about like true crime yep. jack the ripper all you know serial killers all that type of stuff so it just fascinated me how do these people work right and then you know after being a copper three or so years after becoming a copper i was a detective and i was working on homicides and yeah Chasing those type of bad guys that I'd kind of always researched and looked into as far as true crime goes, and yeah, love that. Still that invincible person, right? You know, yep. just kicking in doors, chasing down bad guys. I sort of carved quite a decorated career as a copper. Awesome. And then in 2005, and this will make you giggle. 2005, we we're getting itchy feet. We've been in our house for a while, you know. Yeah been copper for a few years and while we were on holiday in Fort Aventura on the Canary Islands that year and we were talking about oh should we move house, should we maybe move to the country or maybe start a new life in Spain or you know it was one of those type of things and then I was reading a paper one day in work and there was an advertisement for New Zealand police. Oh well. They were recruiting international police officers so I was thinking oh a couple of cousins that had moved to New Zealand and thought oh yeah we could do that. Took the advert home to M and said, oh, look about this. And she was like, no, can't go to New Zealand. And I was like, why? And <laughs> um, we'd recently watched a documentary with Ross Kemp, and it was about the mongrel mob. Oh, <laughs> and listen, I knew, knew it would make you laugh. Because I was this invincible copyright, got into COVID or, and doing drug investigations, working homicides and all mm-hmm. that. M knew the type of person I was like. Yeah, and she was going no we're not going there because you'll end up getting mixed up with that lot you'll end up locking them up you'll end up doing all this and I'm like well you know there's gangs everywhere love you know it doesn't matter where we go anyway long story short in that same conversation she says no we're not going to New Zealand but if Australia comes up we'll look at that and me thinking internally I didn't say anything Time, but I'm thinking what well, and you don't think the gangs in, in Australia and you think Australia's safer than New Zealand uh, anyway <laughs> straight away I was, and it was this was like the end of August 05 that this happened. And straight away, I was on the internet, I was having a look to see what was around. And as it happened, Queensland, South Australia, and WA were recruiting well, copies as Well, yeah. I looked at the different packages, and WA had the best package permanent residency from day one, and this one. Anyway. Yeah. And then I looked at the entry requirements, and I had four days to get my application in. Well. <laughs> So I worked my nuts off over the next four days, got my application in and eleven months
1: later we arrived. Oh, wow, that's amazing. And I know. It's a big turnaround. Massive turnaround.
0: Yeah. And it was literally like a whirlwind, it's like And what was also funny at the time was my offsider, who was a trainee detective at the time, had also applied, but we hadn't told each other. Oh well. Wow. And it wasn't until we both put in for leave on the same day to go down to London to sit the entrance exams and things. Yep. That we found out, and he's still here too. Really? Yeah. So you both come over here together? Yeah, and he lives in Mandari.
1: Oh, okay. We're <laughs> <laughs> still mates now. Yeah. Oh, cool. So neither what, of us are coppers anymore, but um, yeah. What sparked this need to get away from where you were based? In um,
0: look, it, I could just see the UK was changing a fair bit. Yeah. In um, what way? Well, just the level of crime. I'm not a racist person one bit the immigration policy in the EU borders in the UK meant that a lot of transient criminals from different European countries were coming in and mm-hmm. I could just see crime changing yeah there's a copper over there uh, becoming and more in, violent yeah and and also getting closer to home okay so we lived in quite a safe town and about 12 months prior to us moving over here there was a guy shot at the end of our street well and that was the turning point for me then yeah I was thinking, you know, if it wasn't Australia, it would have been somewhere else because we we're obviously talking about yeah. that. Anyway, you know, two young girls at the time, of course, want to protect them, bring them up in a safe environment. Yeah, you and know, I didn't think them at the time would be would actually want or be interested in moving the other side of the world. But fair play, you give her a crack. And when she came up with the idea of oh, we'll look at Australia, well, for me, I was just transported back to when I was a kid, right? Yeah, living over here, remembering the beaches as a kid, remembering. You know, swimming in my auntie's swimming pool in Adelaide, all those type of childhood memories. And I thought, I want my girls to have the same thing. So that's what we did, and,
1: and then we moved over here. And do you think that's been the right choice for your family?
0: Oh, yeah. I haven't been yeah. back since.
1: Oh, well. 12 years this year and still haven't been back to the UK. Can't say I've met many
0: poems that haven't been back. No. <laughs> I've <laughs> talked about it. We've spoken about it so many times, and we considered it. And don't get me wrong, I miss people over there. Yeah. But it it's a lot of money. For it not to be a holiday, it would just be visiting people and going through what we've gone through as a family. If I'm going to have a break through my working year or wherever it is, mm-hmm. I, I want to have a break so I can yeah. recharge my batteries or my family and I can recharge the batteries too. So as much as I love people over there, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd have to be getting a holiday out of it too. Okay, That's fair. Huh? Um, we have talked about it so many times and to be honest with you, my folks aren't getting any any younger and probably won't make the journey out here again so yeah i'm probably gonna have to at some stage but i'll go via somewhere in europe yeah so moved over here family was settled in okay uh, went through the academy got all that you know back on the streets again yeah yep. fighting crime and uh, were you in the same role? no no i essentially gave up being a detective when i came over here okay. I had to start again in general duties yeah and all that which is fair enough, and you knew that was the deal, but about a year, maybe eight months after coming over, I managed to get a job state intelligence division doing covert work well, and you know for me I, I thought perfect way to try and get back to at least yep. the level of operation I was at, so I ended up being on this team going forward, and we've been over here about two years. We were building this place, em and the kids were settled in quite well, and we had a fair few bit of financial pressures. Building and renting and all that type of stuff. Um, one of my things I I still have to work on yep. is I really put a lot of pressure on myself. I'm okay, a bit of a perfectionist. As the head of the family, it's my job to be the keystone, okay. to so be the like provider. Yeah. And at the time, I was putting a lot of pressure on myself, and i probably looking back now. Yeah. The was creeping up on me, and because I'd been this invincible person for so long, I probably didn't want to accept it either. Yep. So yeah. So do
1: you feel like you're identity was tied to your position in terms of work? Yeah,
0: I, my identity, me being this invincible person,
1: you know, a yeah. strong father and role model to my kids and the
0: husband to my wife and all that type of stuff. So it was making sure they were still settled in or settling in. And I was working this real high pressure, high risk job. Yeah. So it was the pressure of that too. But at the same time, the detective sergeant, the detective senior sergeant I was working with. Mm-hmm. Whether it was because I was a pom or whether they saw me as being parachuted into the role on this covert team. okay, Which I probably kind of was, but based on my merits, based on my yeah. experience and doing that work previously. And it was a new team doing certain work that hadn't been done here in Australia before, but we'd yeah. done in the UK before. So, And I think there was just a fair bit of resent from them. Because of it, so they set about this six month period of systematically bullying me when we weren't operational as far as in the high risk situations we were in. Even back at like the office, I'd just be given shitty menial tasks. You know, it was just all about disempowering me and
1: okay. knocking
0: me down. But operationally, they would set me up or try and set me up to fail. And well, what their goal was, they were going to try and performance manage me out of the position. Okay, I should say, no, I wasn't fit to do these. Yeah this job. Me being a perfectionist, knowing that I was good at my job, I was probably a victim of my own circumstance, of my own success. So every job they set me in to fail, I came back with a result. I was kind of fanning the flames, right? And I wasn't doing it to piss them off. I just wanted to be accepted, yeah. right? I just wanted them to accept me as a good cop, a good crime fighter, covert operative, mm-hmm. but as well as my family pressures, the pressures of that work. And also at the time I had three personalities, right? There was me, Jason yeah. Nelson at home. And then I had two pseudonyms, depending on the jobs I was working on.
1: Yeah. All right. so and what were those?
0: I can't tell you. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm still sworn to secrecy as far as operational okay. stuff, even though I've been out of the job for 10 years. But I was basically two other people.
1: Oh, so you mean two pseudonyms tied to your work and undercover. Yeah. Cover. Oh, yes. and sorry, I thought you meant as in another personality that you... No. Have in certain situations.
0: No, I don't okay. break out the spandex <laughs> like a superhero or
1: anything like that. No, I, I was like, it was like I thought you meant like maybe you're one person at home and at work you'd oh no, no. And be a boy's boy.
0: Oh no, uh, well I mean that was that was definitely the case as far as the person that I was at home was different to work without yeah. a doubt because you just didn't bring work home. You, you can't yeah. come home and of course describe some of the horrific scenes that yeah. you see, right? Well,
1: just... My dad does the exact same job, and I've never once had him talk about any of that yeah. stuff to me to be honest it must be pretty hard for people who work in homicide first responders because they do have to deal with that by themselves they can't bring that home and yeah. share it because it's too much for a family to deal with so yeah. i can't imagine what you're going through then
0: just touching on that, and the first responder services now who i do do a lot of work with through the health space
1: they're realizing
0: now that yeah. in a big way. The gone are the days when I was a cop where, you know, if we'd had a really yeah. tough shift we'd go to the pub after just get yeah. pissed and it'd be black humour that would get us through. But you know, that type of stuff's frowned upon now and rightly so, you know, you can't really all go out as coppers and get pissed and yeah. But um that was kind of how we cope. But yeah anyway, getting back to, to my story, so I was going through that period and it just sent me in a into a real dark spiral, you know. Okay. I was in a really dark place and Struggle to get up out of bed in the morning and along with the depression, the, the panic and the anxiety of the sickness deep in the pit of my stomach, having to go to work every day
1: and yep. face that—it's just unbearable. So this bullying started out with them trying to undermine you okay. and then you fanning the flames, just wanting to do a good job and fit in. It's just a vicious circle, And right? then it eventually turned into something that you were afraid to be a part of, or...?
0: I, I I was just scared. I was just... I just made me feel sick going
1: to work, not knowing what I was going to face. Okay.
0: The fact that, you know... I'd In first... terms of what you'd be solving, or the bullying? Uh, the bullying, and knowing... Well, or not knowing what job they were going to set me up yep. for next, right? Because I'd worked up until that stage as a copper with that that... Unreal rule that everyone has your six, everyone has your back. Yeah. If course. any of your colleagues go down, an officer needs assistance. Everyone pours out of the police yeah. station and backs them up, right? And now I was working in a situation where those same people were corrupt and were trying to. Yeah. And and we're talking about working with serious criminals, right? So if yeah. something had gone wrong, my life, my safety was at risk.
1: Well, so it wasn't just nitpicky. No, like no, they were
0: setting me into operational situations. Where I, I was to fail.
1: Well, it's... But because... And thought. where I
0: talk about victim of my own success, I was... And I'm proud to say I was that good. My tradecraft was that good. Yeah. That I always came out
1: with a result, right?
0: But it could have gone so badly so many times. And, and that's why I became so depressed.
1: Did you ever find out why they were doing what no. they were doing? No.
0: Okay. But I wasn't yeah. the only one. I found out there was a bloke before me and there was a
1: bloke after me that went through the same process. So. Yeah. Well... Being in that position, being undermined by people that are supposed to have your back, your six, as you called it. Obviously, being someone who had that childhood memory of this team of people running this team, congratulating you, those commandos, and then going into the Royal Navy, having that camaraderie, all those people to fall back on, they were your brothers, and then coming into this position where they're supposed to be your brothers, but they're setting you off into life-threatening situations. Yeah. I can definitely understand how it was causing you this depression that you've oh. said you had during this period of your life. I reckon that that's
0: sort of towards the end of that
1: six months. Definitely, was probably the, the hardest.
0: Okay. Period, well, one of them the hardest periods of my life. Without a doubt. Because I'd never experienced any mental Ill health right. As I said, I was this yeah, invincible, invincible guy, you know, and that's how I saw myself. You know, I'd I'd be the first through a door, and I'd be yeah. Jumping all over a bad guy, you know, and I faced people with knives and bats and and guns and all that type of stuff before, you know, and I never once ever thought, I knew there was risks to those things, right, but for me it was always a calculated risk, and when I was wearing those uniforms, right, you know, I I did feel invincible, I felt like almost like a superhero. Okay,
1: and so how did it make you feel at the end of that six months?
0: Well, I was suicidal. At the time, we were living in a rental house in Ridgewood, and being on this unit, not all the time, but a lot of the time I was bringing a firearm home. I had a safe in the walking wardrobe. In yeah. Is that normal
1: to bring a firearm Um,
0: No. No, okay. no. I don't know what it's like now. I'd say back in the day some country coppers might have firearm safes in their houses because they're on a the copper and the hat and the town or whatever yep. but no because i could be called out at any time mm-hmm. in this job and where we worked out of was a, a safe location it wasn't a police station it was okay. a covert location if we got called out on a job at two o'clock in the morning it'd be straight to the job so a firearm okay. had to be at hand but having a firearm when you're suicidal mm-hmm. was probably not a, yeah, of a good mix you know so i used to come home and i heard all of it from the girls but um em wow. uh, knew i was not well yeah but I just covered her off as stress of the job,
1: because
0: I, I never brought stuff home from the job, so yeah, it was just course. stress of the job. Um, but she knew increasingly I was becoming unwell, because she'd catch me crying. I'd be coming home, unload my firearm, which was a Glock handgun, put it in the safe, get a shower, and a lot of the time I'd end up just curled up in a ball and a shower tray, sobbing my heart, you know, um, before composing myself and then coming into the family space to be. Dad and husband, but that was just getting harder and harder. And then it got to the point with the suicide ideation and contemplating suicide. Was, I chose two different ways of doing it. Uh, one was obviously to put the, the gun in my mouth, which I did several times. Okay, I'd squeeze the trigger slightly. Another way that I planned was just to drive a car straight into a fucking tree or yeah, you know, something like that. And it was it was after. One of the times where I, I'd had the gun in my mouth, and literally just after M walked in, I was just an absolute mess. You know, I just yeah. I didn't want to be here anymore, and I didn't like, I didn't want to die. I've got to make something clear. Yeah, but I just didn't know any other way for the pain to stop. I didn't okay. know the pain to end, and, and and I just thought that whole whole self worth stuff and being the provider. Yeah, was all playing on my mind. You know.
1: So in a sense, you're sort of failing the expectation you had of yourself. In yeah. Your head.
0: Oh, absolutely. Everything was in place financially if I died. So yeah, I just I just saw it as a as a way way out of the pain. And this is from a person who, as a kid, had a phobia of death. Right? I used to make myself yeah. sick thinking about. Oh, really? Death. As a little kid, yeah. Grew out of it, but yeah, yeah, it kept me up at night. And it got to that point, and that's when I first admitted to him that I was suicidal their did it, conversation go? Oh, fucking hard, man. Yeah, yeah. one of the most emotional conversations I've ever had, I'd say. It was that... I liken it to that feeling of... Oh, I wouldn't know how it feels because I've never drowned, but, you know, when you see something on the movies where someone's, like, drowning, falling down the water and then yeah. they're sinking, but all of a sudden this one hand reaches in and grips them out of this abyss. That's how it felt for me, yeah. right? You know, it's like um,
1: this hand pulling me out of this dark hole so do you feel in a sense that M was your saviour or this conversation?
0: Uh, yeah, certainly gave me the courage and the empowerment to speak up. Okay. You
1: know? I guess hearing that conversation alone gave you the encouragement to speak up. Did you feel while you were going through this period of being suicidal, having the gun in your mouth, planning to drive into a tree, did you feel isolated and like you couldn't reach out for some reason?
0: I'd withdrawn, I'd self you know, I'd isolated yeah. myself mm-hmm. um, rather than being isolated yeah because I didn't want you know I felt like a burden I didn't want to burden yeah. anyone else with the pain I was going through and well used...
1: you've done it your whole career so yeah yeah I can understand exactly. why they didn't change yeah
0: but obviously knowing now yeah that was the, the wrong thing to do and uh, and now I work encouraging other people to <laughs> speak <laughs> up uh, about how they feel and, and sharing their experiences and definitely being in them careers you know it was macho orientated yeah male-dominated cultures where stigma was rife. And, you know, it still is to some degree. Um, putting your hand up to say that you, you're mentally not well. Yeah. Sign of weakness. You Worry about your career. And and all of those things went through my head, right? Yeah. When, after that conversation with them, um, I knew I was that unwell that I had to do something. I had to speak up. And that's what I did, right? So next day, instead of going to the, uh, the covert location where we used to work, I went into the police station in the city, went to see the superintendent, dumped the shit on the desk and found another job because um, I'm not working for them anymore and I had another breakdown in her office Well, she was really supportive of that, yep. um, my superintendent at the time and, and although nothing was done about the two guys and I was kind of swept under the carpet a bit, at least they found me another position to work in yep. and got me to see a psychiatrist. Okay. Um which was kind of important for me. I, j- I just wanted to get off there yep. and get some help. I was angry that nothing got done with them, but of course. karma came around to bite them on the arse a few years later, so I'm not really bothered about okay. that. But um,
1: I was just in that point of crisis where I needed that yep. help. And backtracking back to that conversation, did having that conversation with him then allow you to see that you're not a burden and that it was finally okay to speak about it? Uh,
0: the feeling of self-worth and burden and all that, that's... Yep. I still struggle struggle with that, okay, from time to time. Yeah, not to that degree, but you know, I'm still the head of the family. I see, I'm still the provider, and still, still got to be the strong one. Um, but I have learned that I don't always have to be the strong one, and yeah. I do need self care and I do need help. But that's come, you know, with ten years of trial and error, and I'm working on my mountain fitness. But at the time, no, it was just about how skewed my thought process was about. Um, they'd be better off without me and all that. And it wasn't about whether they were better off without me. I, she made me realise how much I would have missed out. Yeah. And the times and memories with them if I had killed myself. And we've always been a close family and I've always been close to my girls. So I think back now and I think, God, I imagine if I had, I would have missed out on this last 10 years of yeah, their lives, exactly. their formative years, and, and seeing them growing up into beautiful women, you know. But it didn't really change my thought process about mental illness.
1: Okay. So you're still very much this macho, keep it to yourself. Yeah.
0: You know, up until three years ago, I probably never spoke about it. Really? Yeah. To anyone? Mm, Close people. Yeah. Very few people. never publicly speak about it. Never to work colleagues. The guys I've worked with for the past 10 years, they've only just found out the last three years. Okay. Yeah, because of that same thing. You know, I disclosed it back then, 10 years ago, found the help, came good again. Yeah. Managed my symptoms, managed my signs, back to being this invincible, or what I thought was this invincible person. Yeah. And I think it was because it was so ingrained in me for military career, police career. That's how it was. Yeah, I only started talking publicly about mental health and being passionate as an advocate after Holly, our youngest daughter, attempted suicide. Coming up for three years ago now. She had a couple of overdoses in the space of well wow. three months. And and that that was the shift in me. Okay. So from I went from being this invincible guy yeah, to a guy now who's like a, a go getter, career minded, mm-hmm. wanted to get promotion, I wanted to climb the ladder, I wanted to do all this and not really focused on material things, but I was always the, trying to succeed. I better myself. To, better myself, yeah. All the time. And then after we after Holly attempted suicide and we went through the aftermath of that. Yeah. It was like a holy fuck moment. Yeah. What have I been doing these past X amount of years? And and even really got me to reflect on my own mental health recovery journey. And that's when I became passionate about speaking openly. I thought, well, I was part of the stigma. Yeah. Right? Because I couldn't speak openly about it. I wouldn't expect anyone else to and therefore I was part of that stigma movement. Yeah, because I was in that male-dominated society, that, you know, that causes this pervasive fear of speaking up. But yeah, after watching your own daughter overdose okay. and going through the aftermath of her being in, you know, secure mental health facilities and getting the right treatment for her, and and again going through the whole anxiety of of yeah. her aftermath with the family and what have you. Yeah, just for me, it was like that's it, no more now got to try and help i didn't want a any teenagers to go through what holly went through unfortunately they still do but i thought if i, if I can do something if i can learn and if i can share my experience or at least be a voice for people living with mental health conditions then they may have the courage to speak up too.
1: yeah and so do you feel you sort of limited holly's ability to speak up because you, in a sense, were putting on this front, this bravado, instead of being who your family needed you to be, who you've become.
0: I would say I probably, I, um, I probably say, in in all honesty, I probably because of the way I was and the person I was.
1: Yeah.
0: I certainly didn't help Holly heal. I certainly wasn't the best parent I could yeah. have been, and I have my parents' style has completely flipped on its head. Okay.
1: So what's Since the that? change?
0: Well, I was this hard ass disciplinarian, a okay. military guy, yeah. police officer, you know, my way or the highway, suck it up, princess, all that type of stuff. And when Holly was ill, you know, looking back now, when leading up to Holly's attempts on her life, we butted heads a lot. And what I saw was just bad behavior from a teenager and stropping off to a room and all that were actually sounding symptoms that I should have probably picked up on. Yeah. And shouting and screaming and... Very much a carrot and stick type relationship. We like if you don't do your homework, well, you know, you am taking your iPad off you, taking all that type of stuff. Um, and looking back, it just didn't work. And as I said, my parenting style is completely flipped. And although she's, you know, she's twenty this year, so you know, she's not a kid anymore. Wow. But our relationship changed. Yeah. Three years ago to now, we rarely argue, rarely have a bad word, and um, we sit down and talk. Things through, and the extra study I've done since into mental health, and my understanding, because as well as depression, anxiety, Holly is borderline personality disorder. So, okay, a lot of our behaviours or our signs and symptoms come across as attention-seeking type of behaviours, but it's yeah. not it's a signs and symptoms. So, I've I've learned so much more as a parent and as a person, you know, yeah. as an appreciation for mental health, and it's actually got me to then obviously reflect back on my own journey and going back to to reconcile with a lot of those things and process of things that i went through and i suppose what we didn't i kind of touch on yeah five years ago i had this routine hernia operation right yeah distance running too much gym and distance running ended okay. up this tear get the hernia fixed uh, which went great came out of surgery not a problem em and holly had been in to see me and yeah just felt tired as you do after general aesthetic. Go and go and have a walk around the shop, so I'll get a couple hours sleep, I'll be right. And then during that sleep I woke to the feeling of what what felt like my heart pounding in my throat in okay. my neck. Obviously didn't feel very well at all. Called the nurse. Two nurses come in. They took one look at me, looked at each other, took another look at me, and then pressed the emergency button and because I was still on obs and that, yep. I could see my heart rate was like one sixty and oh, climbing. Wow. Yeah. Um, from a standing start in my sleep. And mine sits around 50 normally. So Yeah, being someone who runs a lot. Yeah. So for it to go like that, I was like, I'm not even doing anything. I'm just lying here and my heart's fucking beating like this. Next thing is, the alarms go off, the crash team comes in. You know, I've gone from little old me in my hospital room to like 15 people, doctors yeah. and nurses everywhere. And I was shitting myself, you know, because no everyone was rushing around, but no one was really talking to me. Yeah. All I could feel was like my veins pulsating in my And I just started crying. I was like, I remember saying to the nurse, uh, and her name was Kiara. I'll never, ever forget her name. Yeah. I remember saying to her, you've got to tell me what's happening because I'm not ready to die today. And I was proper shitting myself. She said, I, I really don't know. Your heart rate's just climbing and climbing and climbing. I said, someone's going to have to tell me what's going on because I'm, I'm fucking shitting myself here. And then eventually got one of the consultants to talk to me and she said to me, um, Look, your, your heart rate's just climbing. Don't know what it is, um, but if it keeps climbing like this um, and we can't get under control, then we're going to have to use the defibrillator on you to shock your heart back into a normal rhythm. Yep. It's like, well, or you're going to have a heart attack. I was like, oh, yeah, okay, if I wasn't shitting myself now, yep, I definitely, definitely was. I and while all this was happening, Em and Holly walked back in to okay. so this pandemonium. And never forget it, I remember... Holly screaming in the corridor. Yeah. Like walking in and going out screaming. Em just dropping her shit on the floor and like rushing over to me. And then they spent the next four hours pumping me meds to lower my heart rate, uh, which started to, to lower. But the problem with those meds is it alters your oxygen levels and all yep. So it was a real balance. And, and my heart rate didn't come back to normal till the next day. Okay. So you can imagine how exhausting that is. If you're out in the gym and your heart rate's up about, you know, to whatever level you get it to. Yep. You feel it, don't you? Because you're you working it. I was lying there and I was working it. So I, w- I was literally exhausted. Anyway, all came good. Went through all the cardiac tests and all that type of stuff. But what came as a result of that was that traumatic incident in itself in the hospital mm-hmm. triggered all of the trauma that I'd locked away in my head since I was a kid Well, to come tumbling down. I, I liken it to like a library, right? So yeah. As you go through life, you pick up these little short stories of trauma Yeah. that you put on the shelf in the library and in the back of your head and it will be right, just put it there, leave it, compartmentalise it. But if you're not careful, obviously the library and the bookshelves can come tumbling down, and that's what happened on that day. So physically I was fine. They just put it down to an adverse reaction to the general anesthetic or something like that. Okay. But this triggered all this trauma to come out. So I spent the next three months, hit left field with PTSD signs and symptoms, um, flashbacks, mm-hmm. night terrors, hyper vigilance, paranoia. You know, thinking people are following me, and and, and I still, to some degree, I'll, if I'm in a cafe or a restaurant, I'll sit with them, I've got to view the exits. But I didn't. I'd never experienced any of this before. These sort of yeah. symptoms. You know, and things are triggering me, like smells or tastes. And well, I was obviously started having flashbacks to the abuse I, I endured as a kid. Uh, loss of my best mate Pete who died on my books night, early hours was on my wedding day. My grandmother who died. These things that I'd never processed properly. Yeah. I picked up along the on along life's journey but never really processed. Yeah, well you didn't teach yourself how to process
1: No, things, no, exactly. That was the person you're supposed to be for your job. Yeah. So it's this
0: invincible guy but I was carrying this bookshelf of shit around in yeah. my head. Right. Anyway, I- so, three months, I kind of put up with these symptoms, trying to figure it all out. And it started me on another depressive cycle. Okay. And um, I wasn't suicidal, yeah. again, but I knew I was going that way if I didn't get to yeah. help. And I remember the day while I was working in the office in Boragoone at the time, so I was getting the train. I was on the train between Perth and Cannon Bridge. And in between those two stations, I just broke down emotionally. Well. Just, here's a bloke in a corporate wear, busy commuter train. Yeah sobbing his heart out on the train. And I remember it well because not one person asked me if I needed any help. Really? Not one person stopped, asked me if I needed any help or, or even asked what was wrong. Yeah. And again, that was another thing for me. And I tell that story because I'd never want to be that person. And I don't... I want to I teach people never to be that, that person.
1: And do you have an understanding of why it was exactly that you were crying?
0: I just felt emotionally broken. I just
1: knew I desperately needed help. Do you feel like it was all finally coming out after yeah. being held back for so
0: long? Yeah. That, and I knew I wasn't dealing with those signs and symptoms well. Yeah. kind of probably had a suspicion it was PTSD, but I probably didn't want to... Admit it? Yeah. I didn't want to put my hand up again. You know, still just trying to be this <laughs> yeah. invincible person. Yeah. Like. But I knew. I got off the train. I was still crying. I found them and told her and I said, look, I, I feel... Like I said, I'm, I'm getting on the train back home. I'm just walking into the GPs in the asphalt. And that's what I did. And I was pretty much crying all the way home. Well, wow. Hiding it with Sonny's. Sorry about that. That's one of the dogs. Um <laughs> Went to see the GP, uh, which led to the diagnosis of yep. complex post-traumatic stress disorder, um, which I'm still working through now. Okay. But um yeah, so going through depression, anxiety, my own PTSD journey, and then Holly.
1: Yeah.
0: Kind of all that came what? in the last 10 years. Uh, and that's what leads me to what I do
1: now, which is amazing.
0: And on the back of that, got some further education and do a lot of charity work.
1: Uh, before we move to what you do now, which obviously inspires me to do what mm. I'm doing. Yeah, like I said, I do look up to you. I do want to go back to what you've been through. Obviously, going through what you went through at work, the bullying, the suicidal attempts and thoughts, having that conversation and opening up to M and then asking for a replacement and then having to go through this train ride where no one asked you. And then, Holly, obviously you've been to see professionals to help you through this. And you've learned tips, tools, and tactics Mm. to help you along this journey. If you're looking back at all those events now, what were the major lessons you took from them? The
0: biggest lesson
1: for me, is uh, the importance of
0: engaging help yep. early and often as well. Mm-hmm. It's not like you go for one visit to the GP, you get one happy pill and you're all right again, or yep. you go and have one visit. visit to the psychologist and you're all good, mate. You know, it's an ongoing process. Yeah, And uh, and I don't know whether... Ice cream, Andy. Yep. I don't <laughs> know if, if... He's still here. Um, I don't know whether... Fully recover, yeah. or whether actually wanting—I know that might sound bizarre—but I just see it as a a learning journey, and I'm still learning. I, I might fully recover because I'm still I'm still going through therapy, I'm still getting help. But at first, when I first sought help, I just said oh, I just want to feel normal again. Yeah. But I think my recovery journey is my new normal, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Because I don't think how I was before this invincible person was normal.
1: No,
0: it's not. Uh, probably those, these were all... Well, I know now that a lot of these things were part and parcel of that imbalance that probably led to where I was going to anyway. Yeah. Educating myself and seeking qualifications in mental health, I've certainly learned about that whole holistic balance and, and how the social side or your environmental side or your lifestyle or your cultural side or your spiritual side, if you get any one of those things out of, out of whack, out of yeah. balance it can tip the scale. So looking back, it was I to think I was invincible. You know, that was the path I was on this. And that's why I liken it to like a river carving its way down. You know, I was just get out of my way. I'm coming through. This is the person I want to be. But now I think back, that's not the person I want to be. Yeah. This is the person I want to be now. And that's where I strive to. Yeah, definitely uh, say top tips: definitely open up early, open up uh, often. And... Knowing that it's... um, I was actually weak for keeping it inside. It's not a weakness to open up. No. It was a weakness to keep it in. Because that was eventually what was my endearance. That was my weakness.
1: In a way, it's a weakness keeping it in because you're bowing to peer pressure. Which is what you encountered in the police force and the Navy. Keeping this trauma to yourself.
0: And, And that was it. Uh, as I said, that was the weakness because now I know that, that mental health doesn't discriminate. It yeah. can it can affect anyone at any time. Uh, just in Australia alone, 50% of the population at some stage in their lifetime will, will, will live through a mental health condition. So to have this unrealistic expectation that it wouldn't ever happen to me, and, and that's what still goes on in those cultures now in the services, and that's why I'm I'm really strong about breaking down those that stigma and those myths because they're just barriers to care, right? They, they were barriers to my care and they're still barriers to other people's care. So, yeah, I suppose that's probably the biggest, the biggest thing was opening up. You yeah. know, I always say that now to anyone. As it happens, that's obviously what your podcast call is opening up. So And, and it is, it's so important. It's the first step to recovery it is opening your mouth and putting your hand up for help. Well,
1: you did say that the first step to recovery is opening up. We are going to move on to recovery and the specific tips, tools, tactics, be it people or methods that you use to help you come back or that you're currently using to help you come back from that failure to live up to your own expectation the attempts at suicide and the PTSD yeah what have you used or are you using at the moment that are making a big impact on your life mentally um it's
0: not for everyone but I'm on medication Yep. Um, I've been for a number of years now. Again, one of my stupid macho things yep. when I first became ill was like, oh, I'm never going to go on medication. But I, now I understand what mental illness is and my mental illnesses that I live with. I need that medication to rebalance the chemical yep. chemicals in my brain. Yeah. And, and without that medication at the moment, I probably wouldn't be as balanced. So okay. it keeps me on an even keel. Yeah and then gives me the space to do the other stuff. So as far as other stuff, talking about psychologists, uh, I still see a psychologist regularly. Awesome.
1: And um, how do you feel that's helped you? Oh,
0: I think we mentioned before when kind I of started speaking that um, I'm on my sixth psychologist over 10 years. Wow. Um, uh, that's not because I've broken the last five. Yeah, uh, And this is a, a good bit of advice for listeners, is that it's okay to change yep. from psychology. It's very important to find... A connection with a psychologist mm-hmm. one that works like right kind of chemistry and rapport and my previous psychologists weren't bad it yep. was just that they only got me to a certain point of course or help me deal with a certain thing Whereas the one i found now currently working with jessa name is she's she's the first one that's really gone back to my my childhood yeah and we're working through this timeline of my life and we're unpicking things uh, as we' going I can imagine that's powerful it is powerful, really powerful and scary I am not scary it's exhausting at times. Okay. I come out of sessions feeling exhausted, yeah. sometimes emotionally. I also come out looking forward to the next one, yeah, if that makes sense because I know how much good it's doing for me, so a few things have gone along the way, cognitive behavioral therapy, obviously the talking stuff with the psychologist I've done. Cognitive writing therapy, and I I still do that myself. Uh, Not under any guidance, but I know what to do with that now, so I still do that. And what's cognitive therapy? So it's it's kind of writing about things that, depending on what it is for me, the trauma, write about the different incidents of trauma. And some people may think, well, isn't that re-traumatising? Well, yeah, it is difficult to write about those things, because I, I write about them in as much detail as I can. But it's also very cathartic. It gets it out of your head and on paper. Exactly. So there's benefits in that. And then what I do then is after I've written these things down, I'll go back to them over a number of days and and read through it again, read through it again, read through it again. And, And what that does over time is help you desensitize to a
1: lot of that trauma. And although it is essentially writing to yourself and still keeping it to yourself, it's better than holding that inside internally and not even processing it It does give you a chance to process it and acknowledge that it that it is there that it has happened but that you are trying in a sense to let it go exactly right and
0: then i've taken it to a different level where i now i now write poems about my feelings of those traumas too for yourself or do you share those I'll, i'll i'll be sharing them as well well um but i also write about recovery and about what you should be doing to help other people heal yeah. in poetry as well. Wow. So
1: that's amazing.
0: And again, it just makes me feel, it helps me with my own feelings, helps yeah. me, as you said, externalise it rather than internalise That's helped a lot for me. The running, obviously. Yeah, of course. And I always look out for new things as well. So from time to time, I'll go back and do some yoga. Uh, I'll meditate. An old police sergeant, actually, who now lives in New Zealand, taught me a, a meditation method when we were coppers together back in the UK. And it yeah. takes 10 to 15 minutes, but it's it's really quite... Awesome. So I'll go back to that from time to time uh, if I need a bit of mindfulness. Um, I, and recently I did some equine therapy. There's a place up in Bosbrook called The Kindness Project, mm-hmm. run by a lovely woman called Jenny. And essentially horses have this ability to self-regulate and actually help deregulate your own feeling really? in their presence. yeah. So it, it's really hard to explain. Yeah. I'm going to do a blog on this in the future with Jen's help, but
1: and it's, hold on, is that blog going to be posted on your website? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So we'll link your website, Kilted Rogue Runner, in the show notes below, yeah, that, just for anyone that wants to oh check that, that blog yeah, out. that'd be awesome. Essentially, you don't
0: ride the horses. Yep. You just share the space with them. It's so amazing. So she has a, a herd of eight horses. Uh, on, this, on the two days I went, I the first day I went in, basically sat on this huge log in the shaded area of the paddock, mm. in with the horses. Jen and I were just chatting. And then interacting with the horses as they see fit. So you're not yep. forcing yourself upon them, you're waiting for the horses to come to you. It sounds really bizarre but kooky, but it's it's really powerful. Yeah. They actually pick up on parts of your body that are in pain and can kind of mirror your feelings. it's like an energy connection. Yeah. And, and there's this one horse like the leader of the herd that dog, it's gonna be the death of me. Um um you wouldn't think her name was Princess, would you? Um, <laughs> yeah, I had this connection with the sort of leader of the herd, this horse, and I didn't share too much with Jen. She knew yep. i had some live experience. But I didn't share with her any physical injuries or anything that I had at the time. Anyway, sharing a space with these horses, just this one horse, really close. And horses are beautiful anyway, but at the time I had a bit of a tight shoulder, left shoulder. Yeah. And also was suffering with a bit of um, pain and pressure issues from my ears. i have been flying around the state in February a lot, talking about in my own agency, my mm-hmm. workplace, talking about workplace resilience and recovery. A lot of flights in my ears, and the pressure in my right ear kept playing up. Anyway, sat there talking and my horses are doing whatever they're doing. And the next thing is this horse comes up and nudges my left shoulder like three times. And Jen's like, ah, oh, picking up on your shoulder there. How's that going for you at the minute? Don't tell me you've you've got an injury or something. I obviously was carrying an injury at the yeah. time. And then horse came round to the front and started moving its mouth in a funny way and, and twitching its right ear and um, and she says he's picking up something from your head. She hadn't disclosed any of this. And, you know, people listening might think, Well it all might be coincidence but uh, and I wasn't feeling emotional like I wanted to cry. Yeah. But I started crying. Okay. It wasn't like hysterical crying my eyes started to leak. Yeah. For want of a better word. But I wasn't I wasn't feeling like
1: sad or anything.
0: Yep. It was more a
1: feeling of relief or Release. Yeah. I've had that same feeling with uh Reiki.
0: Really? Yeah. So that's something I wanna wanna explore. And there are a few friends that practice and my dad practices. Yeah. But not that he's ever done that on me. But yeah, horses have this inane ability to sort of like suck bad energy out of you. And then they oh. carry it off to another part of the paddock yeah. and, and release it. That's how it works, essentially.
1: I'm going to have to look into it.
0: Mate, I'll send you up to see Jen. She'd be awesome. more than happy to see it you. Sounds good. Yeah, so I ended up like, spending a couple of hours up there. But I came away like so much lighter and yeah. what have you. And I came home and I was telling Holly and Emma about it. And I said, her, I can't explain it. You know, it's one of them things that you can't. Even, and even Jen, who runs the Kindness Project, finds it hard to explain it. Because a lot of it's feeling. And it's hard to explain feeling. Anyway, I came out and told him that, And Em was like, oh, when can we go? Spoke to Jen. I said, oh, no, it's a long weekend. But if you're around, can we pop back up? And she said, yeah, come on. So I took Em up with me. And we were in a different paddock opposite side of the hill, if you like. Fed the horses. And had the same connection with the same horse again. Wow. and But That's Em saw it, you know and jen was explaining this stuff you know when they talk about humans like when you're in rem sleep it's about rest and, and repair you go yep. into your body goes into rest and repair well horses do that several times through the day well wow. so having you have this interaction with you? they then go into this state of rest and repair and it's bizarre because you're in this paddock with these horses and then they all all of a sudden become like statues <laughs> where they're kind of sleeping standing up and, and in this rest and repair state but this horse wouldn't leave me alone you know it was, i was having this continual interaction with him and then later on towards the end of the session one of the ponies came to M and started interacting with her yeah and it was strange the way it was set up as though the horses were mirroring M and i and our kids well if that makes yes. sense when the horses set themselves up a number of the horses separated them off as a like as a family unit and behaved that way in our presence. it's, it's really crazy. hard to explain but again i came away from that like wow yeah so these are the kind of things i look for you know i'm always on the look for new things and,
1: I think that's really important to not just understand what it is you're going through, but to actually find something that works for you because not everyone's the same and not everything's going to work for
0: everybody. And that's so true, mate, because what I learned studying for and mental health last year is uh, what we call the principles of recovery. Mm-hmm. So you've got the clinical side, the psychiatrist, psychologist, medication, yeah. um, and that's very much a process of trying to find a cure or right, trying to fix you but them fixing you. Yeah. Whereas the recovery model is giving you the power to fix yourself, right? Yeah. So you follow those principles. And one of those principles is person-centered, which you touched on then, in that both you and I are, are different. We come from different cultural backgrounds, as most of Australia is so multicultural and yeah. everyone's so different. But even people in the same family are different, I right? Can have different colored hair, can have different mm-hmm. heights and all that. Well, so our recovery journeys are totally individual. What might work for me yep. might not work for you. Yeah. You know, when we talk about running, people go, oh, I couldn't think of anything worse than going for a long <laughs> run. But it works for me, right? Yep. But for other people, it could be music. It could be scrapbooking. It's finding that purpose and working to your strengths and your interests. And that's the other reason why I'm seeking a lot of these new things out, because I want to share them. With other people, because one of the things I've found, certainly with my mental health studies and being a peer support worker, is people don't know where to look. Yeah, there's there's there so many really awesome services yeah. out there, and many of them are free. Yeah, because right? that's another barrier to care. Is a lot of people think things cost money. There's so many good things out there, but they're just they're just not advertised. Yeah. they're just not promoted. You know, because mental health care is the poor cousin to physical health care. Yeah, suicide's a little one the leading causes of death in Australia. Yeah, of course. But it it doesn't get the airtime, it doesn't get the funding, it doesn't get the resources. So yeah, that's another reason why I do, to be able to share those resources and find things that other people might not necessarily find.
1: That's amazing, we need more people doing that, definitely. Of those tips, tools and tactics, the Mm -hmm. medication, the psychologist, the therapy with the horses, everything you've used so far to help you recover, if you're speaking to someone in your situation who's gone through something similar to what you have, what would be something you'd recommend for them to try first at that?
0: First and foremost is opening up, right? You've got to yep. go to your GP, let them go through the diagnostic processes, and at least that's your first step, It right? doesn't necessarily mean you need medication, but they can get you on a, a mental health care plan under Medicare, which yep. gets you 10 sessions with a psychologist, if need be. And I'd say it takes at least six before you start making any headway with a psychologist, anyway. Okay. And when I was talking about chopping around if, if you don't, if you go end up going to see a psychologist or a GP and you don't get the response you want,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and if you don't get the the lead into the care that you need, then go and see another one. Okay. Uh, that's one thing I would say. Right, if you if you go to Coles. To, you go to buy some apples and the apples are shit at Coles. where do you go you go woolies right yeah same with doctors same with health care if you you're not happy with someone you don't keep paying them money to be shit you go and find one
1: that works for you cool. so that would be what you'd recommend to start yeah. off with opening up see your gp yeah. and then request that mental health plan that we spoke about on uh episode three i guess with shannon yeah. so going through that recovery do you ever fall back into that state of depression or yeah, cause suicidal tendencies. Oh,
0: not not the suicidal ideation, thankfully, no. But yeah, I have, I have bad times, for yeah. sure. And I, I still, like this last few weeks, especially with the court case leading up and with my historical stuff, my sleep's been shocking. Yeah. I've probably had two full nights sleep in the last three weeks, well, because of nightmares or busy mind or whatever it might be. But that's okay, because I know what it is. Yeah. And I just keep working on what works for me, getting myself, my mind into a, as quiet a space as I can before I go to bed, and all these type of things, but yeah, of course I fall back, and that's one of the principles of recovery, and I was talking about before, and there's seven of them, one of them is recognising that recovery is non-linear, yep. that recovery with anything, we, we want it to just be this straight road, and it's
1: yeah, A to B, and things. dead easy,
0: but it's not, you know, it's this squiggly line with hills and peaks and troughs, and steps up and steps backwards but it's okay to fall right it's okay yep. to fall as long as you keep falling forward that's how i see any relapses or any drops or any increases in my symptoms i don't see it as a step back i see yep. it as a fall forward okay it's a good way to look at it well the thing is for me the two words mental health yeah straight away just bring up negative connotations yep, right? There's just so many negative connotations but mental health is actually opposite to mental illness right? But the words mental health mean mental health illness to people. Yeah. So I try not to talk about working on my mental health. I just say I'm working on my mental fitness because it's a, awesome. a far positive way of looking at it. If we're injured or we're ill, yeah. we go to the doctors, we go to the gym, we work on a fitness level. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, I'm just doing the same for my mind. I'm just working on my brain. Exactly. And that's what you have to do. Yeah. And as I said, one of those principles of recovery is acknowledging right at the start of your journey yeah. that it's non-linear. But it ain't going to be a quick fix. That it, it's going to take time. And give it time. And, and you might have to fall forward a couple of times, but you're still moving
1: forward. Right? And again, if we are using that mental fitness attitude that you said mm. and relating it back to the journey of physical fitness, you wouldn't go into a physical fitness journey thinking the next two sessions, I'm going to be fit. I'm going to be where I want to be. So yeah. you sort of have to go into that mental fitness journey with the same attitude that you would uh, body transformation.
0: Yeah. It's exactly right. You know, if you put it into a sport context, I read this in an article recently online where it said, like, mental fitness journeys, like when you're playing on a team sport, right? If you're having a bad trot because of an injury or whatever, or your form's not that right, coach yeah. subs you, sticks you on the bench for a while until you come good. That's all a mental fitness journey's about. You know, sometimes you've got to sit on the bench, yeah. take stock before you can come good again. But you'll be back on the pitch, you'll be back on the field, you'll be back on the
1: over, whatever it it is
0: that's the kind of way i look at it you know it's okay to take a knee
1: yeah take some breaths in i love that saying i'm gonna steal it steal it i stole <laughs> it <laughs> okay so we're going through um, your childhood your story yep. and your recovery if we're getting to where you are now mm-hmm. having gone through this depression and suicidal tendencies through this fear of failure the bullying. Mm-hmm the PTSD, the trauma from the hernia to Holly, having mm. overdosed twice. Having gone through all of that, which is a lot of hurt, and a lot of pain to bear, a lot of stuff to work through, what is your quality of life like now? Awesome.
0: Awesome? Awesome. Yeah. There's a phrase for it now, it's called post-traumatic growth, Yeah. where you don't just get to this point of norm, but you actually grow. Yeah. On top of that, and that's kind of how I see it. I think it was the title of my first blog on my page was Through Struggle Comes Strength. Yeah, And to follow on from that, it's given me a passion for compassion. That's how I see it now. Whenever I talk about it, when I'm speaking publicly or giving presentations, I actually say I'm grateful for everything I've been through. And I mean that wholeheartedly because those life lessons have given me this passion, yeah, this real love to
1: keep the conversation going
0: breaking stigma down we
1: we're gonna step into what your mission was but it sounds like that's what it is just there yeah this, yeah for sure i guess opening people up and taking away the stigma to make mental fitness as you called it a little more mainstream and a little more acceptable to speak about mm. how are you going about achieving this
0: it kind of started back in 2011 really mm-hmm. after a suicide attempts and recovery from the depression and that and I started out with three of the friends, co-founded the Rogue Runners Club Australia, a free-to-join running community here in Perth where like-minded people get together, and share their experiences, involve family and, and improve fitness. So that's kind of where it started. Yeah. And as a result of that, we raised over the last seven years now, we've, we've raised over $80,000 wow. for different charities. But what was happening each year, we were choosing a different charity every year. Yeah. But we found after the GFC and, you know, pressures in our own lives that it was becoming harder to re-energize every financial year to raise money and and so on and so forth. So um, at, at the time Holly was in hospital, we were already looking at finding a new charity for the following financial year to start in 2016. And I came across Sirens of Silence. Mm -hmm. which is a charity based out of Broome here in WA by two former paramedics, Lynn and Ian, after a spike in first responder suicides. And they could see that there's people falling through the net in the services uh, on what the services were provided. So I came across Lynn and Ian and I started speaking about them and the work they were doing. And as it happened, when the second attempt, we were struggling to get Holly a bed in a mental health facility and I contacted Lynn and Ian. And with their contacts and with their help and their support we were able mm-hmm. to find someone for Holly. So it wasn't just this charity that um was for first responders living with mental illness. It was about support network for the families of first responders. And that includes former okay. first responders like myself. So after going through that and their help it just it just struck a chord with me. Yeah. And given that three of the four co founders, Rogue Runners, were ex coppers, it kind of fitted right and we wanted to find a charity that we could link with long term yep. to save re energizing and putting too much pressure on ourselves. So that's how we got in with Sirens.
1: And so is that how you see yourself achieving this mission of taking away the stigma? Well
0: it's it's certainly helping. So we joined with Sirens twenty sixteen. Yeah. Two years on I'm now the vice president of that charity. Cool. They're growing in size and in the help and the support services they do. And with the peer support work that I was doing, Sirens uh, put me through to do a cert four in mental health, which I did last year. Yeah, which I completed at the start of this year. Which Congrats, really, by the way. Uh, thank you very much, and I recommend it yep. to anyone. Really opened my eyes up, especially to recovery. Yeah, the recovery model, but also to mental illness in general. You know, the, the main ones we hear about: are depression, anxiety, PTSD, schizophrenia. Actually, there's over 400 diagnosable mental health conditions, which obviously opened my eyes. But it also educated me about a lot of the myths and this, that, and in doing that, I got the opportunity to do a couple of speaking gigs, just small, low-level ones. But I found sharing my story and my lived experience was really striking a chord with people and helping other people course, this is what I was discovering. Meeting people like yourself and others along my journey, sharing our experiences, and I was just getting some really, really good feedback. You know, yeah. Um, But I was kind of just finding my feet and feeling how I was going, but it seemed to be working. And then August, September last year, I was invited over to Brisbane to speak at an international post-traumatic stress conference over there. That's amazing. And I was like the final speaker, keynote speaker on the second day. I'd like two weeks to prepare, you know, this invite. And I was like, oh, God. And you know what? It was one of the most powerful experiences. And it was quite emotional for I me. I got emotional it. on the stage. And, and it's full of academics, yeah. right? And military and first responder people. It was all about military and first responder stuff. But I got up there and shared my story. And and it just made me realize the power of lived experience. Yeah, of course. And funnily enough, 12 months on, a lot of the charities and organizations now are recognizing the power of lived experience and yeah. using people with lived experience to empower others.
1: Obviously, being up on stage, sharing a message that's as powerful as the message you're sharing at the moment, having lived through all those experiences, you never know who's in that crowd who might be experiencing something that they haven't yet externalised or processed Mm. or haven't even thought about processing. That's really powerful, and I'm excited to see where that takes you.
0: Oh, I'm excited too. Part of the journey, the last six months, I went back to Western Australian Association for Mental Health. I just finished a recovery storytelling course. Well. Wow. Classroom full of awesome people. Yeah. Different lived experience, learning how to share this story. And I suppose I was kind of ahead of a lot of them in that I'd already been doing yeah. a bit of speaking. But I learned so much from them, you know, and there's people in the room in the 50s and 60s, but there's kids in there just turning 20, yeah, all sharing course. experience. And not one story more powerful than the other, just different for different reasons. um. So I've I've learned a lot out of that and as we said at the start I'm now on the speaking bureau for Western Australia Association for Mental Health which again is giving me a great experience because I'm not just resharing my story yeah um I'm, I'm tying it into different subjects now so whether that's de-escalation yeah. techniques post traumatic stress mental health first aid, uh, workplace wellness, whatever it can be. So I'm honing my skills now as well as helping other people. And then I've always had this sort of thought once I started doing this that I could um, take the public speaking further and also start to get into workplaces, doing training and stuff. So only a a few weeks back, launched my website, the Kilter Grove Runner, and offer those services. So whether it's public speaking or workplace training, also a couple of weeks into the blog space now. Yeah. So obviously I wanted to share different aspects of my story and my journey, but I only got so much airtime. So I opened it up uh, to anyone that, that wants to share their stories about mental health. So essentially I'm opening up to guest bloggers now. I'm about to post one tomorrow from Heidi Anderson, from Heidi's Avian Ryan from 92.9. Wow who's a mate of mine uh, who lives with anxiety, and she's got quite a powerful story. So she'll be up tomorrow. I want it to be a positive.
1: By the time this episode's out, guys, that blog post from Heidi, from what was it? Heidi
0: Heidi Anderson from Heidi, Xavier and Ryan from Hit 92.9.
1: Okay, so her story, her personal struggle with anxiety will be up on yep. yep. I encourage you guys to go check that out because, of course, someone in that position that takes a lot of courage to share a story yeah. like that.
0: It's a really interesting story. One, I'd encourage uh, especially female listeners to, to tap into because she talks about body image and, and okay. issues with yeah, the, and that's and something
1: that a lot stuff. of people struggle with.
0: Yeah, so that's what I'm doing. I'm opening it up, not just for people uh, in a position, public eye, yep. like Heidi, but anyone really who's so got a, a story to share. Um, I'm opening it up. You, you can contact me through the website. Um, or email me at thekiltedrogerunner at awesome. and, Um it's all about sharing experiences but it, it's got to be a positive message about recovery and um, what's worked for different people
1: yeah of course it is all about helping people mm. and encouraging people to yeah. open up so with that I'm going to wrap up yep. but I just want to acknowledge you again for what you're doing like oh, obviously you've been, you've been through a lot you've been through a lot having coming from England, that position of power, this bravado macho, yeah, and okay. having having gone through what you have and flipping that to becoming this loving, helpful father rather than the disciplinarian you yeah. talked of, to now helping other people who are struggling, whether it's through speaking or Sirens of Silence with the charity, helping PTSD with first responders. It's amazing what you're doing and the fact Thank that you sure, continue man. to learn and grow to help people even further that's really inspiring to people like me who are just starting off on this journey so thank you so much no mate you you inspire
0: me too Uh, i've said before you know i'm a i'm a lot older than what you are but the fact that you're able to recognize what you've been through yourself and and making a difference at your age you're years ahead of me in in many respects yeah um, because you've got many more years out of you to to share this and do what you do which is awesome by the way so yeah that acknowledgement is reciprocated right the fact yeah. that you're doing this is amazing
1: thank you so much uh yeah
0: fingers crossed we can continue helping other people like moving forward for me i'm already looking at maybe doing a diploma in counseling so well wow. we'll see how that goes next year i've got to get through this year that's first, exciting yeah it'd be it'd be pretty cool the kilted counselor yeah i don't know if that'll work <laughs> <laughs> <What> <laughs> we'll might see? have to wear some jocks yeah there, i, I think you. so <laughs> yeah <laughs> It's all about learning and being able to keep that conversation going more importantly and used to say we can't turn these statistics around.
1: Exactly. Around statistics well I like really, really believe that people like us are gonna help take mental fitness as you call it, hashtag mental fitness. Gonna take that, fitness. that yeah, gonna take that mainstream. I believe okay. it's gonna become something that is acceptable to speak about. So thank you again.
0: That's all right. My pleasure.
1: This has been awesome, man. Thank you nope. for letting me come over and Oh, do this mate? with
0: you. No, my, completely my pleasure, my honour, mate.
1: That was episode number four with my man Jason Nelson, also known as the Kilted Rogue Runner, of course. Like I said before, links to his contacts, his website, his blog, will be in the show notes below. That is the thekiltedroguerunner.com.au. And for that blog, for that guest post, if you're looking to be someone who does want to share their story on his site, the instructions will be in the show notes below as well. Don't forget that by the time this episode comes out, the story with Heidi from Heidi, Xavier, and Ryan will be live. So go and check that out. It deals with a lot of body image issues, which is something that I struggle with myself. If you're looking to be a part of the open-up group, the closed group, whether that is General or the FIFO, the fly and fly-out group, I'll link that in the show notes below. And until the next episode, take care of yourselves and enjoy life. Ciao.